Hello, everybody, and welcome into this edition of the Sports Detective Podcast, hosted by yours truly, James Williams. And we got a loaded show for you today. Gonna do a 35-minute narrative about the 85 Chicago Bears football team. There's a lot of things in there. You might say, oh, you know, I saw the 30 for 30. That 30 for 30 was 100 minutes long. I have facts in this that weren't in that. And this kind of brought to my attention. I've kind of thought about it this past week and a half. First off, this is this podcast, this narrative that I've done. It's the most researched one I've done. It's the by far the hardest one to done that I've done. And it's the longest. So I hope you enjoy it. Would love feedback on it. With that being said, I also was watching that uh, the 30 for 30 they did for ESPN. It was done about four or five years ago. And I think there is this thing in sports documentaries where you tell a story, but you might not tell the whole story. And some of that is how people are in their lives. With Michael Jordan... You might have watched that last dance and you said, okay, he addressed that stuff. Or you might say, you know, I don't think he addressed it enough. Or you might say, he lied like seven times. It's blatant, but whatever. Who cares? I watched the long gone. I'm, I'm going to get to the narrative here soon. I just wanted to say this real quick off the bat. I watched the long gone summer documentary, the Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa one. And it's kind of this thing when I'm getting back to my original point is what do you know about that season? What is the lasting memory? What is it 22 years ago about that 1998 home run chase? You know, they use steroids. It's just you watch that and you look at the footage of Mark McGuire. He's got like muscles coming out of his freaking eyebrows. And it was mostly just like they didn't mention steroids. They mentioned it slightly like in the middle but they only took like the last 10 minutes to like do it. And it's like the whole season's like the home run trace. He hits 70. Sammy Sosa's at like 66. And then with like 12 minutes left, they're like in court testifying. And you're like, okay, what happened here? You didn't tell the whole story. And part of that is too, it's like, hey, if we want to spend 60% of this on steroids, why would Sam- you have to, if you want to tell the whole story and actually have the players that are involved's perspective, you actually have to kind of appease them and you don't want to have them be like, hey, how many times did you take steroids during a week so you could get through this? But that's essentially the whole point of this podcast is just to kind of show an unbiased narrative. And I have facts here too, where it's like even the 85 Bears, there was a lot of tension in that team. There's a lot of dysfunction in that team, but they really couldn't address it all when they did the 30 for 30 because if you watch it, they go to Buddy Ryan's house, and that's where they do a lot of the storytelling is from Buddy Ryan's house. Um, and this was like 2015, 16. He passed away in 16. The dude can't even form a sentence. But there was a lot of beef between him and Ditka over the course of that whole 85, I guess their whole, what, three or four year run they had together in the 80s. So I address that in here. Um, I don't think I'm vicious about it. I don't think I'm unfair about it. I did a lot of research. 
So without further ado, here you go. Here's my narrative on the 1985 Chicago Bears. Football, at its core, has always been violent. Violence is the appeal to so many fans. A team that may have been the most violent in NFL history was the 85 Bears. The one word they used as motivation before going into every game was dominate. And dominate they would, as they went 15-1 and and captured a Super Bowl championship. They weren't the first team to win a Super Bowl and to dominate their opponents on their way. But the way they went about it was unlike any other Super Bowl champion. Their defense was the greatest the NFL had ever seen and was led by three future Hall of Famers. They would scare opposing quarterbacks, typically going through two or three each game before the punishment was finally over. The main scheme they used was the dreaded 46 defense that revolutionized modern football. Most quarterbacks of that era avoid comment or won't do interviews about the 85 Bears because it will spark PTSD and make them relive life or death experiences they had on the field. Their offense was led by the greatest running back in NFL history, and a punky quarterback who was more wild and crazy than he actually was talented. And boy was he talented. The Bears head coach was underqualified and ill-fit for the job he got. Dicka, the grizzly bear head coach, would regularly feud with defensive coordinator Buddy Ryan. They despised each other. The team was dysfunctional. After the 85 season when Buddy Ryan left to take a head coaching job in Philadelphia, Dicka said he wasn't happy that he was leaving. He said he was elated. If the tormenting defense, all-time running back, punky quarterback, and feuding coaches wasn't enough of a story, how about the team writing, performing, and producing a Grammy-nominated song called the Super Bowl Shuffle? A song they recorded the music video for the day after, literally the day after, the team's only loss of the season. Call that confidence. But the origin of one of the most violent, dysfunctional, and greatest teams came in the most improbable of ways. It started from two heartfelt letters. The first was from Dicka to NFL pioneer, Chicago Bears founder, owner, and longtime head coach, George Hallis. Hallis had coached Dicka when he got into the league in 1961. Dicka started off his career with five straight Pro Bowls and two All-Pros, and he helped Hallis secure a pro football championship in 1963, pre-Super Bowl era. Even though there was success and achievements, Dicka's run in Chicago ended suddenly and with a feud with Hallis. It was a contract dispute. Hallis didn't throw around money willy-nilly. He would throw nickels like he did manhole covers, or at least that's how Dicka described it. Contract negotiations and feuding with Hallis got Dicka sent to NFL Purgatory in Philadelphia. These were the worst years of Dicka's life. He didn't perform well, he wasn't playing, the team didn't win, and his personal life and well-being went into the tank. Dicka became depressed and began drinking. He was away from his family, and the depression and booze knocked Dicka into his rock bottom, until he got a call from Dallas Cowboys head coach Tom Landry. Landry called the old beat-up tight end, wanting to know if he still had some game left. He did. He actually helped the Cowboys win a Super Bowl, even catching a touchdown in the winning game. After his career was over, Tom Landry brought Dicka onto his coaching staff as a special teams coach. 
go back to the Bears, who since owner-coach George Hallis hung up his coaching fedora and his rolled-up program and stopped calling his players cocksuckers, his favorite word, look it up, had been below average if not just plain bad. Of course, they had talented players such as Gale Sayers, Dick Buckkiss. They carried the torch in the down years, but they didn't win any championships. It wasn't until Mike Ditka wrote George Hallis a letter asking him to renew their friendship and inquiring about the direction the franchise was going at head coach. If there was an opening, Ditka wanted to throw his hat in the ring. Hallis, 86 years old at the time, was running the Bears again after the passing of his son, who had run the Bears for the past decade. Instead of his son-in-law coming in to take over, he came out of his bunker to run the team. Only a Hallis is equipped to run the Bears. Hallis and Dicka had a secret meeting. The first thing Hallis asked Dicka was, what's going to be your coaching philosophy? Dicka replied, the same as yours. I want to win. Dicka swayed Hallis to take a chance on his former hot-headed tight end to be the coach of the Bears for the 80s. They hammered out a deal right away after their meeting. Dicka was signed to the smallest head coach contract in the NFL. It didn't matter to him. He just wanted to prove to his old coach that he made the right choice. The move was widely criticized. You can't hire a guy with a little experience to run your football team, especially a special teams coach? Dicka was a great player, sure, but a head coach? Really? You can't be that emotionally volatile as a head coach. Nobody else in the NFL would even think about hiring him. The truth was that playing and coaching under the great Tom Landry helped Dicka control his emotions on the sidelines. Even though Dicka would regularly blow up anyway, it would have been 10 times worse without Landry. Dicka was the right man for the job. He symbolized the city of Chicago unlike any other coach. He even looked like a bear. Big, grizzly, burly, the ability to rip someone's head off in the blink of an eye. His mane slicked back, his mustache. He had the exact look of the bear's mascot. He even won the players over right away when he introduced himself as the head coach of their team. He implored, we're going to the Super Bowl. The thing is that some of you won't be here when we do it. But even with his arrival brought tension in the coaching staff. When a coach is hired to take over a franchise, they typically can control the coaches that they put alongside them. But this Bears team was another story. The second letter that George Hallis received that would help create the greatest team in NFL history was from the Chicago Bears defense. During the 1981 season, the team could see the writing on the wall. They knew that the team wasn't performing well. They knew head coach Neil Armstrong was on the outs. They didn't want the same for their defensive coaching staff led by Buddy Ryan. So they read George Hallis, aka Papa Bear, a letter begging him to keep their group together. The letter went like this. We the undersigned members of the Bears defensive football team are concerned about the future of our team. We recognize that with the disappointing season the Bears have had this year, that there may be some changes in our coaching staff and or administration of the team. Our main concern is over the fate of Buddy Ryan and the other defensive coaches. Buddy has maintained discipline, morale, pride, and effort that we need in order to play well defensively, in spite of the fact that we haven't had much help from the offensive team. After receiving the letter, Hallis met with the players only. He acknowledged that the letter was the highest honor a coach could receive. Being a former coach and player, he realized the importance of keeping the defense intact, so he announced that all defensive staff would stay put. Meaning, when Dicker arrived, he had the offense, and Buddy Ryan had the defense. This also meant they were coaching two teams. Dicka and Buddy hated each other. They were at war. Dicka would try to get Buddy to run a specific defense, and Buddy would say, fuck off, I run the defense, get out of here. 
There was a story where Dick had tried to enter a defensive meeting, and Buddy reportedly threw an eraser at him. Buddy, the visionary behind the coveted 46 defense, which was a group of intricate formation used to disguise personnel and then blitz the hell out of the quarterback. Buddy and some of the players believed that he should have been the one to take over as head coach in the new regime. This divide made practices epic battles of war over the control of the team. If you asked Dicka who the toughest team the Bears played in 85, he would say the Bears. After he was hired, it didn't take long for the Bears players and fans to realize that Mike Dicka was insane. He was expressive, a fist pounder, a no-nonsense kind of a leader. He would flip off reporters, and at press conference if he was asked questions he believed to be stupid, he would grunt and say, next question. He would destroy equipment. After a loss to Baltimore, he punched a wall which broke his hand. He had a short fuse. One minute he'd be calm, the next he'd throw in clipboards and cussing people out. He would blow up on the sidelines if a quarterback would ever audible. There was an incident in a San Francisco game where he responded to a fan heckling profane language by pulling a big wad of gum from his mouth and hurling it at a fan. The woman got a massive gumball lodged in her hair. Police threatened assault charges. Over the weeks and years, players tend to take on the personality of their coach. But what if your coach is a maniac? Well, then you have a team full of maniacs. There is no other player on the 85 Bears that wears that hat better than quarterback Jim McMahon. Jim McMahon was a rebel by nature, going against authority at every turn. He was a California cool kid who somehow found his way onto the BYU football program. He set 55 records at the school and passed for more yards than any quarterback in NCAA history at the time. McMahon would always find himself trouble at BYU. He would violate just about every rule of the Mormon code and do so with a joyous smile. Stories would make their way around campus. McMahon was chewing tobacco. McMahon's drinking at a party. McMahon's sleeping over at his girlfriend's apartment. Not different from the average college experience, but these offenses are big no-nos in the Mormon community. Bears fans got their first taste of the first-round quarterback when he arrived to Hallis Hall with a beer in his hand, tobacco under his lip, and a six-pack under his arm. One of the things that made Jim McMahon special was that he was the only quarterback that Dicka couldn't terrorize. It wasn't much of Dicka being able to handle McMahon, as it was McMahon being able to handle Dicka. Over his tenure, Dicka insulted, demeaned, and ridiculed a handful of young quarterbacks. A third-string quarterback had to get treatment from a sports psychologist for the mental torment Dicka unleashed on him. Dicka would treat everyone the same, even the quarterback. But that was the problem. Quarterbacks are different. They need confidence instilled in them, and not to be yelled at constantly. But Jim McMahon wasn't your ordinary quarterback. He would headbutt teammates, he would go out drinking all night, and then show up at practice the next day like nothing happened. McMahon's advice to tell other quarterbacks how to deal with Dicka was this. You look him in the eye and say, go fuck yourself. If you did that, he'd leave you alone. McMahon made the Bears' offense two-dimensional. Pre-McMahon, the Bears' offense was solely on the shoulders of Walter Payton, arguably the greatest running back in NFL history. The plays for Walter would go as follows. Walter left, Walter right, Walter up the middle. Very dynamic. McMahon changed things when he was on the field. He gave the team an edge. He would audible all the time, and that would drive Ditka crazy. But his audibles worked. He would get touchdowns, and Ditka would still be throwing fits on the sidelines. For a stretch in the 80s, the Bears were 35-3 when Jim McMahon was healthy and started. But that was one of the biggest problems with the 80s Bears. 
McMahon couldn't stay healthy. By the time the 84 season came around, the Bears were finally starting to put some pieces together. Their defense was starting to come into form. It was menacing and included Richard Dent, future Hall of Fame defensive end and sack machine. Steve McMichael, psycho D-tackle nicknamed Mongo and earned two All-Pros. Dan Hampton, future Hall of Fame defensive lineman. Mike Singletary, Hall of Fame linebacker and 1985 Defensive Player of the Year. Gary Fensick, Yale graduate and hard-hitting All-Pro safety. Otis Wilson and Wilbur Marshall were the two QB concussing linebackers. And together, this group, along with a few more rotational pizzas, were one of the most menacing defenses in NFL history. The 84 team was good enough to make the NFC Championship game. So why couldn't the Bears get over the hump in 84? One reason may have been the health of Jim McMahon being sidelined for most of the season. What happened to McMahon, you may ask? Well, he was injured in what many considered to be the most violent game ever played. In a Week 10 matchup against the Raiders of Los Angeles, the Raiders lost two quarterbacks. Third-string Ray Guy, the punter, refused to enter the game. In the third quarter, McMahon took a hit the wrong way and exposed himself when a linebacker hit him in the kidney, slicing it in half, lacerating it. McMahon was still able to play for two more snaps. His face grew pale. He would try to call out plays, but he couldn't speak. His teammates had to carry him off because he wouldn't leave. He was in the ICU for 10 days. He fought with doctors who wanted to remove his kidney. He thought they'd never let him play again if they took it out, so he agonized for a few extra days until the bleeding finally stopped. Even without McMahon, they still managed to make it to the NFC Championship game to play Bill Walsh, Joe Montana, and the 49ers. But the game wasn't even close. San Francisco won 23-0. The only good thing about this loss is that it's what drove the incredible 85 season. Players and staff were filled with shame, anger, and frustration from the loss. Next time, bring your offense. That was the critique of that Bears team. The 85 season, the Chicago Bears made everyone eat their words. The one thing that really ticked Dick off about the 84 season was how it ended. Bill Walsh, debatably the greatest coach in NFL history, ended the game by inserting an offensive lineman into the backfield in the closing snaps. Dicka took it as a sign of war and disrespect. You put a big fat old line guy in the backfield? of a playoff game to show me off? Oh, oh no, no, we got something for you next season. The Bears rolled through opponents in the 85 season. We know their defense was all-time great, but their offense wasn't that bad either, second in the NFL statistically. But there were bumps in the road. The first bump that they faced was in week three against the Minnesota Vikings. McMahon wasn't starting this game, not because he had just sliced one of his kidneys in half, but because he suffered a neck injury from sleeping in a waterbed. Of course, the public didn't know of this dumbfounding injury at the time. But the previous week, Max celebrated a win over the Patriots with a drunken night of adventure. He stumbled into his room when he got home and crashed on his waterbed. He lay drunkenly passed out in his waterbed at an awkward position that prompted him to get a pinched nerve in his neck. McMahon showed up to practice with a neck brace on, and Dicka wouldn't let him practice. This prompted a week-long feud between the coach and the quarterback. Dicka had a rule. If you don't practice, you don't play. Mac on the other end was telling reporters, there's no way I won't play. Fast forward to the game, Steve Fuller, McMahon's backup, couldn't produce. McMahon was hounding Dicka the whole night on the sidelines, pleading to put him in. Going into the third quarter, the Bears were down by eight. 
Ditka finally obliged to put in his wacky quarterback. Not because he wanted to win, but because he wanted him to stop annoying him. The next quarter of football that McMahon played may have been the best he ever had. The first play Ditka called was a low-risk screen pass. McMahon noticed something in the defense and called an audible. Ditka, as you expected, was on the sideline cursing and throwing his clipboard. Mack took the snap, stumbled going backwards, and then threw a dart to Olympian sprinter and wide receiver Willie Galt. First play, 70-yard touchdown. The next drive on the first play resulted in another McMahon touchdown. Of course, it was the result of another audible and a crazy scramble and throw, which caused Dicka to kick a cooler on the sideline. His third drive, he got another touchdown. The Bears won the game 33-24. Fast forward to week six and the Bears had a rematch against the 49ers. The game the Bears had circled on their calendars as the we're getting our revenge against these guys game. They even painted the score of the NFC Championship game on the roof of their workout facility, 23-0. Dicka wanted the players to see that score every day. This motivation worked. They sacked Montana seven times, and in the fourth quarter, Dicka got his revenge. When the game was out of reach, he put in D-tackle William the Refrigerator Perry to take a few snaps at running back. After the short cameo, the Fridge, as he was called, became a star. Suddenly, Chicago was flooded with Fridge shirts, hats, memorabilia, Fridge commercials, and a group of big-bone cheerleaders who called themselves the Fridgettes. The Fridge was a different kind of player. Dick had drafted him, thought he was an athlete if he controlled his weight. Buddy Ryan didn't care for him, called him fat and slow. Dick has said he may be fat, but he sure isn't slow. His teammates referred to him as Biscuit because he was a biscuit shy of 350 pounds. After the Niners game, Dicka celebrated on the plane ride home. He had purchased a case of wine from Napa Valley. He had promised his players that he would share with them if they won, but the wine never made it back to the players. Dicka was drinking white wine. If two bottles is a lot, he had more than a lot. He was stumbling all around when he got out of the plane. Players say he was all over the road driving, and several recall passing his car pulled over by police on their way home. Dicka was convicted of drunk driving. Even though they had some good teams before and after the 85 season, the 85 season is when everything clicked on all cylinders. Buddy Ryan's 46 defense was revolutionizing football. No one had seen anything like it. For people that don't understand football formations and terminology, they essentially disguised everything so they'd have seven or eight guys blitz every play. This meant the quarterback would only have about two and a half seconds to make a decision with the ball, if he could get rid of it. You also have to remember back in the 80s, there weren't all of these rules that protect the quarterback from being touched. So even if he got it off in time, he would still be hit by a defender. They'd at least get some contact. See, the Bears' defense viewed football as a game of chess, and the quarterback was the king. It's simple. You knock down the king, you win the game. As Buddy Ryan liked to say, it's time to open up a new can of quarterback. Coaches would accuse the Bears of putting bounties on their players. Buddy Ryan didn't help by saying, we're going to get to know their second string quarterback. But there was no bounties. These guys did it for free. They loved Buddy. He had his own type of leadership and coaching. It was almost cult-like. He would break down his players, yell at them, criticize them, and every once in a while he would give out just the slightest compliment. And these are the little compliments that made players know that he loved them, and they would play harder for him. It was the break them down and build them up method, which was weirdly effective. 
In week 11, the Bears throttled the Dallas Cowboys 44-0. They were up late in the game. Dicka began to take out his starters. He didn't want to run up the score on his mentor. But Buddy kept his guys in. He was still blitzing, going for the throat. Dicka told Buddy to put in his subs. Fuck off, Buddy told him. It's my defense, Dicka. This was the first game that the Dallas Cowboys had been shut out in 15 years. After the Dallas game, Chicago threw another shutout against Atlanta. Back-to-back shutouts led to the most-watched Monday night football game in NFL history. The 12-0 Bears versus the 8-4 Miami Dolphins. The Bears were on pace for a perfect season. The only other time that had been done in NFL history was in 1972 by the Miami Dolphins. Miami head coach Don Shula wanted to keep it that way. Well, spoiler alert. This is the only game the Bears lost in the 85 season. But how did they lose, you may ask? Well, the answer is very simple. Don Shula and Dan Marino broke the 46 defense. Essentially what they did is they just spread out their wide receivers and they let athletic Dan Marino with the quickest release in the NFL pick apart the Bears' secondary, essentially just finding the open guy. Miami dropped 31 first half points on Chicago. Dicka and Buddy argued. It got heated. They had a screaming match in the locker room. Many players recall punches being thrown, and others recall having to separate their coaches. Of course, Dicka denies it, stating, If we fought, I would have kicked his ass. Dicka wanted Buddy to drop the 46 defense and play the nickel defense. Buddy has always responded, Fuck you, it's my defense. When Buddy finally made some adjustments in the third quarter, it was just too late. 38-24 was the final score. Of course, Jim McMahon didn't get the start, but that's besides the point. The chance for a perfect season vanished. Don Shula, the winningest coach in NFL history at the time, called it the best game he ever coached. That's how good the Bears were. It took an all-time great coach and quarterback to have an all-time great performance to topple the monsters of the midway. If anything, the loss was a good thing. It sort of got the Bears to realize that they weren't invincible. We still have a long way to go if we want to win the Super Bowl. And at least the Bears got in the mindset of going to the Super Bowl. The day after the loss, and I mean literally the day after the loss, the next morning, the Chicago Bears recorded a music video called the Super Bowl Shuffle. The Super Bowl Shuffle featured several stars from the Bears and had them all perform raps about themselves. The song was nominated for a Grammy and sold more than half a million copies. The song could be heard all around Chicago, and the selling point of it was all the profits were going to charity. There is also another part in play here for the Bears, the Jinx. Just a year earlier, a few Cubs players released a country single with the lyrics, As sure as there's ivy on the center field wall, the men in blue are going to win it all. One month later, they choked in the playoffs. But this Bears team was different. They were just better than everyone else. They would tackle the jinx like they tackled the quarterbacks. And they did, finishing the regular season with a 15-1 record, the best in the NFL. Squaring up against their first matchup against Bill Parcells and the Giants. The biggest challenge being how they were going to deal with Lawrence Taylor, the greatest linebacker in NFL history. The Bears have a history of playing dirty. Not playing the game illegally, but playing it right up to the edge. This is how they dealt with LT. 
A series or two into the game, a Bears wide receiver named Dennis McKinnon raced at Taylor from his blind side, lowered his helmet, and launched into Taylor. This is a play feared by many. A play that, if executed just right, can end someone's career. Many have tried to get the crackback block banned. Even with the biggest, strongest player, it's dangerous. Even though this play didn't end Taylor's career or even knock him out of the game, it pissed him off. He lost focus and his temper. But instead of using that anger to try and take McMahon's head off, he kept looking over his shoulder the rest of the game, fearful of another receiver coming to get him. As Dicka would say, he went from being the hitter to the hit If you ask Dicka what the Bears did to knock Taylor out of his rhythm, we knocked the shit out of him. The Bears cruised to a 21-0 victory over the Giants, leading into the NFC Championship game against the Los Angeles Rams and one of the best running backs in the NFL, Eric Dickerson. The previous week, Dickerson got 248 yards against the Cowboys. He was getting hyped up by the media. Buddy Ryan said the running back wouldn't have the same success against the Bears. We expect him to lay it on the ground at least three times. But Buddy Ryan was wrong about Dickerson fumbling three times. But he did fumble twice. The Rams went three and out on eight of their 16 possessions. Their longest drive was 27 yards. The Bears won 24-0, heading to the Super Bowl. Just like Dicka said he would when he got the job. Just like he promised his old coach George Hallis. Hallis, who passed away a few years earlier, wasn't alive to see it. As soon as the Bears arrived in New Orleans for the Super Bowl, they arrived with baggage, and as usual, Jim McMahon was the guy who was carrying it. McMahon had injured his ass in the previous game. Yeah, his butt. He had a huge bruise and believed that could be treated by a Japanese acupuncturist, but the owner wouldn't let his acupuncturist on the plane. So Mac used his first press conference to criticize GM owner Ed McCaskey. So the story for the first few days of Super Bowl week was the condition of McMahon's rear end and the efficiency rate of non-Western medicine. The story finally reached its climax midweek when McMahon mooned the press. Another controversy with McMahon that week was when a report came out that he went on a radio show while partying in the French Quarter. On that radio show, he was alleged of saying men of New Orleans were stupid and the women were sluts. This was a very serious issue, as it turned Mac into a villain, and he received a lot of death threats. It became less serious when everyone found out that the radio DJ admitted that the story was made up. During all of Super Bowl week, the Bears knew they were going to win. Most of the team partied all week, but Mike Singletary stayed in his room and watched hours and hours of game film. More news started circulating during the week. Rumors that Buddy Ryan was going to leave to become the head coach of the Eagles. This made everyone on the defense emotional. This was going to be the last game the unit was all together. It would be Buddy's last game as a Bear. He addressed the team the day before the game and told them, no matter what happens after tomorrow, you guys are my heroes. Then he walked out. When the game began, they terrorized Patriots quarterback Tony Eason. He was a young quarterback who had been taken in the first round a few years prior. The Bears destroyed him. He was terrified, really, every snap he was on the field. We were way inside his head, were comments made by Dave Dewerson, defensive back. Tony Eason is the only starting quarterback in Super Bowl history to finish with zero completions. He only had six pass attempts. It may have been the worst quarterback performance in Super Bowl history. 
The Bears won 46-10. At the time, it was the largest margin of victory in Super Bowl history. After the game was over, the Bears players lifted Buddy Ryan and Mike Dick on their shoulders and carried them off the field. One of the more iconic moments in Super Bowl history. But while the rest of the team was celebrating and carrying their coaches off the field, Walter Payton was less than thrilled. He was pissed. Pissed at Dicka for ignoring him on plays. Pissed at the fridge. Pissed at McMahon for hogging all the spotlight. And mad at himself for fumbling early on in the game. See, out of all of the 46 points the Bears scored in the Super Bowl, Walter Payton didn't score any. There were four rushing touchdowns, but none of them went to the all-pro, future Hall of Fame running back. I know over the course of this podcast, Walter Payton hasn't been mentioned that much. I know. That's not intentional. I know the greatness of sweetness. The truth is he deserves a whole podcast to himself. I can't give him his just due with the story of the whole 80s Bears. Over his 13 years with the Bears, he made nine Pro Bowls and had five first-team All-Pros and won a dang MVP. He also set several rushing records and should always be mentioned when you talk about the greatest running backs in NFL history. But this was his Scottie Pippen game against the Knicks when they called the play for Kukoc. It was the one sour moment of his career. At first, no one understood it. We just won the damn Super Bowl. But after a while, Dicka saw why he was so upset. All he had done for this team, and we couldn't even give him the ball on the goal line? If I could do it over again, I'd make sure he scored. The truth was that the Bears' game plan was to use Walter as a decoy. One of Mack's rushing touchdowns was an option play, but he kept it because the defense was focused on Peyton. Even when the fridge got his touchdown, it was a fake sweep to Walter Peyton. After several minutes of hiding in a closet, Peyton finally emerged to join his team and talk to the press. He said all the right things. The Bears were Super Bowl champions for the first and only time in the franchise's history. But when you win once, the question is, can you do it again? So why didn't the Chicago Bears repeat as Super Bowl champions, or even go and win another in a few years? They had the youngest team in the NFL when they won. There are several factors that could explain why they didn't repeat. The first could be the departure of Buddy Ryan. But even though Buddy was gone, the defense still remained one of the best in football, but they did lose their fastball. They weren't as intimidating, and teams soon began to crack the 46 defense. The next could be the players. As soon as they won, or even on their way up, they became stars. Suddenly money was flowing in from advertisements and endorsements from all directions. Everyone was trying to get someone from that team to do an appearance or be in their commercial. In the offseason, several Bears traveled with the World Wrestling Federation. By the end of 85, 10 Bears had their own radio shows. Several Bears players began opening up restaurants and bars, including the kicker. Coach Dicka started taking fashion tips from a stylist. Mike Dicka would tell his players, stay off the damn TV, which ticked off players, not because they were losing money from endorsements, but because Dicka did more commercials than the entire team combined. But I believe the biggest reason the Bears couldn't repeat or even get back to the Super Bowl was Jim McMahon. He just couldn't stay healthy. His health is what kept the Bears from becoming the team of the decade. It wasn't just McMahon, the player, that the Bears missed. It was him as a leader. His rebel edge would always give his teammates confidence that they could do something special. The play that knocked him out of the 86th season still enrages the city of Chicago to this day. 
It was a game against the Green Bay Packers. It was early in the game. Mac threw a bad pass. It was picked off. But it wasn't the pick that drove Bears fans crazy. It was what happened to Mac way, way after the play was over. Charles Martin, a Green Bay defensive tackle, had a towel tucked into his waistband. On that towel, a list of numbers of Bears players he intended to knock out. On the top of the list, number nine, Jim McMahon. Martin picked up McMahon and then drove him into the ground, one of the dirtiest plays ever. Martin was fined, suspended, and ejected. Jim McMahon separated his shoulder. He was out for the season. But even though the Bears didn't have McMahon, they still went 14-2. And they were 6-0 with McMahon at quarterback. Mike Dick had tried to salvage the season by bringing in Doug Flutie to try and give their offense some spark. This worked horribly, and the Bears were knocked out of the playoffs in the first round by Washington. Ironic how the Bears' potential dynasty was ruined by the very same reason that made them so special. The quarterback. The Bears' defense made a living and namesake out of hitting the quarterback and knocking them out of games. It was only just that the fall of the 85 Bears was them losing the chess match. The other teams knocked down the king, and if you knock down the king, you win the game. Walter Payton, Richard Dent, Dan Hampton, and Mike Singletary were all elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Mike Dick had coached for the Bears for 10 years, and is still beloved in the city of Chicago to this day. The whole city was depressed when he was eventually fired. Many of the Bears players still have restaurants and businesses in Chicago. Some of the players and coaches have passed away, including Buddy Ryan, Walter Payton, and Dave Duerson. A lot of them are old, hobbled. But if they're ever in the city of Chicago, they still don't have to pay for a beer. They are champions, and they brought the city something special, something that the city doesn't experience that much of, winning. In Chicago, winning is a miracle, losing is the norm. And the 85 Bears were heroes, and for one season, they were the greatest team in NFL history. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that narrative I did on the 85 Bears, or I guess it's kind of just the 80s Bears. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to learn more about the 85 Bears, I would suggest to, you could still watch the 30 for 30 on ESPN, ESPN Plus, wherever you can find it. It's got a lot of information. It's about 100 minutes long. The main source of my information is the book called Monsters by Rich Cohen. He does a very deep dive of the team, did several interviews, read every single Bears book that was written about that team, autobiographies by players and coaches of that team. So it's very well researched. He talks about his own personal experience. If you're a Chicago fan, I suggest you read that book. If you're a person that's a Chicago native, love Chicago, Everything Chicago loves the Bears. I would suggest reading that. It's chock full of information. It was a fantastic read. I blew through it, even though I had to take notes the entire time and highlight things to get information correct for this podcast. So that's why I suggest if you want to learn more. But yeah, podcast is over. Uh, please go rate, review, subscribe. As always, follow me on Twitter at JWS Detective, and we'll see you next time.